Hello, and welcome to Haunted and Historic, where we talk about houses. Abandoned, historic, and sometimes haunted. I'm Courtney, and I will be your host. While I do not consider this a true crime podcast, and I have no intention for it to be, I do often reference true crime cases and any necessary details when talking about the subjects of our episodes. So I want to give a disclaimer, please listen at your own discretion and around people who are suitable to be listening to this type of content. Now let's begin. You know I love the question, what should be done with houses where a murder has been committed? Each month I plan on covering a house and the crime that was committed there. I want to delve into what has become of them, thoughts from the people who chose to live thereafter, what community members wanted for the property, and the final decision. But before we get there, I decided to do a deep dive into creating a proper introduction to stigmatized properties. According to the National Association of Realtors, a stigmatized property is described as a property that has been psychologically impacted by an event which occurred or was suspected to have occurred on the property, such as an event being one that has no physical impact of any kind. When I did my research for this episode, I did not intend for it to completely shift into a dedication to Randall Bell, but it wasn't long before his word was all I decided to pursue. He's the best of the best and the country's leading expert in his field, and I felt like there could be no better introduction to the topic of stigmatized properties and the conversation of what should happen to houses where crimes and murders have occurred than from the widely proclaimed master of disaster himself. Randall Bell is a real estate economist and appraiser, expert witness, and author from Los Angeles, California, who holds a PhD in socioeconomics from the University of California. While in his previous job, he was falling into the monotony of appraising commercial real estate when he decided to branch out and apply to law school. But after securing an acceptance letter a week before classes were starting, he had the realization that the world might not need another lawyer. He faxed his resignation and set off to use his skill set of appraising real estate to determine what creates a loss of value in properties. Bell's job was to assess property values after a murder or suicide has occurred or damage by natural disasters. He works on solutions for selling the property and ensuring the new tenants inhabit the house and preventing the house from sitting vacant. He provides reports to his clients that write out in great detail the property's problematic past, examples and outcomes of similar properties, and his expert final appraisal. His ability to adjust for the stigma and physical damage when he values a property is what makes his skill set uncommon and highly sought after. He has worked on many extremely notable cases, everything from the JonBenet Ramsey House to the Heaven's Gate Mass Suicide Mansion and even the World Trade Center and Flight 93 crash site locations. He's traveled and worked on cases in every state in the U.S. along with locations like Chernobyl and Hiroshima. Despite being known as the master of disaster, he said, quote, I look at myself as trying to help people find practical solutions. I'm into recovery, not disaster, end quote. I was able to find many instances where he referenced cases that would be more common knowledge and gave an insight that I had personally never known about. Randall Bell's first notable case would be none other than that of Nicole Brown Simpson. Nicole Brown Simpson's dad, Lou Brown, lived in Bell's neighborhood, and because he knew his line of work, he asked if Bell could come by and help him with the appraisal of Nicole's house. Lou had thought that there was a possibility that the property would be more valuable because it was famous to which Bell explained that just because something is well-known doesn't mean it's more valuable. 
I can't include this detail without mentioning that this struck me as kind of odd that the father of someone who was viciously murdered thought that the house would then be more valuable because of his daughter's death. I mean, part of me does understand, but more from an outsider perspective, not from the direct relative of a victim. Luckily, the interviewer in this exchange must have had similar thoughts because they asked about the overall emotional state of Lou Brown during this meeting to discuss the appraisal, to which Bell expressed, quote, Every disaster has a practical side and an emotional side. Everyone gets the emotional side intuitively, but on the practical side, Lou had bills to pay. So he's dealing with the trauma of losing his daughter, but he also had to maintain this real estate. He was a World War II veteran. He was of the greatest generation. He was a guy that was accustomed to being under fire, and so he had a very calm demeanor about the whole process, end quote. After getting his name attached to the OJ case, he was propelled into the spotlight after a friend of his mentioned his work in the murder case of Nicole Brown Simpson in an article she wrote for the Los Angeles Times real estate section. After that, he says, the whole world called and he's never looked back. According to Bell, there is a two or three year period after the crime or event where the value decreases between 15 to 25%. This value drop usually diminishes slowly the more time it's been from the occurrence, rebounding back to the market value after around 25 years, though there are certainly properties that have rebounded quicker than others. However, the initial status of a house being a stigmatized property increases the time the house will spend on the market by about 50%. Many have argued that this is a great opportunity to buy a great house at a greater discount, given that you can live with the history of the home which is a good time to talk about the legality and obligation that is required when selling a stigmatized property. The Latin phrase caveat emptor translates to let the buyer beware. This is a term used when reading individual state death disclosures to determine where it's required to disclose a death or other psychologically damaging information. This essentially takes the responsibility off of the seller to disclose any prior knowledge of a crime, among other things. I used the Spalding Decon website as a reference for this information since they have all the states listed with links to each individual state's death disclosure documents. Spalding Decon is a crime scene cleanup crew that works in 17 of the 50 states. They also have a YouTube channel that is not too graphic, but very interesting and informative if you can handle that kind of thing. Here in Utah, I've heard several people say that a seller doesn't have to disclose a death, but if you, as the potential buyer, ask the realtor directly, then they are required to answer. I feel like this is just one of those quotes that someone got from a movie and it got passed around as fact. You will see that that is true for a couple of states, but just a spoiler, it's not Utah. Here is the official list. In Alaska and South Dakota, the agent listing the property must disclose any known murders or suicide in the last year. In the event that the agent is unaware, they are not liable. California has the most strict guidelines requiring disclosure of all deaths in the last three years, including known deaths due to natural causes. In Delaware, it is not required to disclose a death. However, if a buyer makes a request in writing for information, the seller and agent must provide the information. In Maine, it is not required to disclose a death an agent would need written permission from the seller to disclose the information to a buyer should they inquire. In Georgia, Kentucky, and North Dakota, it is not required to disclose a death, but if a buyer asks, the seller and agent must tell the truth if known. All other states that haven't been listed have no requirement for disclosing a death on the property. Although I did get this information from the Spalding Decon website, I went through and verified the information of all the states listed, 
It was actually kind of difficult, but I tried to be as thorough as possible and used information from many sites to come up with the best and most accurate information. It's important to keep in mind that murders and suicide aren't the only reasons a property can become stigmatized. Properties that were used for instances like drug dealing can be a huge concern for new buyers, fearing that the former clients might not know of the new owner's occupancy and try to revisit the home, or worse. There was also a passage from the Hustle.co website that talks about the hesitancy people have to live in a stigmatized property, saying, quote, A possible explanation for this resistance is cognitive bias, or more specifically, something called availability heuristic. A house where a brutal murder has been committed is a reminder that something terrible has happened in a neighborhood, and that makes it seem more likely to happen in the future. End quote. That was such an interesting concept to me that I'd never thought of, but it makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of when crimes are committed in small, close-knit communities. There's then this overwhelming realization that bad things can truly happen anywhere. Bell was on an episode of the Criminal Podcast with Phoebe Judge titled How to Sell a Haunted House where he said, quote, even though the property physically is fine, people are feeling souls. We have perceptions, and if the perception is negative, whether it be paranormal activity or crime scene stigma, that very much translates into the market's response to that property. So it's kind of mind, body, and soul. And yes, there are physical elements of real estate, but they're also emotional elements, and they very much have an effect on the value, end quote. One of Randall Bell's biggest objectives is to prevent vacancy and get tenants in a home as soon as possible. Going along with the idea that it is easier to sell a house that is occupied than one that has been vacant or has been vacant for many years is that if possible, the owner in possession of the property makes the house available to renters. I personally know of a few cases where this has kind of backfired because a renter moved in who was completely unaware of the crime and quickly found out from the neighbors. This happened in the case of Mackenzie Lewick in Salt Lake City, as well as the Susan Powell home in West Valley, two cases that might sound familiar if you live here in Utah like I do. However, Randall Bell's most important rule is regardless of the state laws, it's in an owner's best interest to tell the buyer or renter of the house's history as a way of being honest and avoiding further legal trouble or traumatization down the road. Another important part of prepping a stigmatized property for rent or sale is proper cleanup. This may seem incredibly obvious, and it is. However, it's important when dealing with a crime scene of any kind to be extremely thorough. In one article, Bell talks about how he once worked on a case where a family moved into a house and after moving in, discovered a bullet hole in the daughter's closet. After tracing back the bullet's trajectory to the garage, the father discovered brain matter where the former owner had died by suicide. There are companies who specialize in crime scene cleanup to avoid these mistakes and prevent traumatizing the new owners. Companies like Spalding Decon that I previously mentioned when using state-by-state death disclosures. I promise this is not sponsored by Spalding Decon, but Spalding, if you're listening, I'm a big fan of your work. Hit me up. Moving on to demolition. It made my preservationist heart very happy to hear that he is not in support of demolishing these properties, explaining that in his experience with the houses he's worked on, it doesn't fix anything. In an interview with Rolling Stone, when asked why these properties aren't just raised, he says, quote, That's a question that comes up all the time. The answer is when you bulldoze a property, you have not bulldozed the stigma. The stigma is attached to the land. I worked on the Sharon Tate property. That property was bulldozed, and I'm telling you, tourists still go by that property to this day. So bulldozing doesn't accomplish anything, really. The Heaven's Gate Mansion was bulldozed completely. The fences, the driveway, every tree, and they rebuilt on it. And people point to the property to this day and say, that was the Heaven's Gate Mansion, end quote. 
When talking about stigmatized property specifically, I do really think that the decision whether or not to demolish a building where a murder or horrific event has occurred is up to the victim's family or the community members. To me, those are the people who should be making that decision. I'd love to dig into this topic of cases where cities have demolished stigmatized properties, and I already have some future episodes planned to discuss this more. Lastly, Bell puts a lot of emphasis on avoiding any deterioration or abandonment of these properties. Even if the house is vacant, owners or estate holders should take the time to keep up on yard work and overall exterior maintenance. It's been a real issue that people have broken into stigmatized properties to hold rituals, and Bell says this is often more common when the house looks the part of the creepy and abandoned haunted house. If a seller is looking to rent or sell the property, after going through the previous steps, they should look at the possibility of renovating the front yard or exterior to further change the look of the house. Bell mentions that the next owners of Nicole Brown Simpson's condo renovated the exterior so well that when he drove by it, he saw people getting out of their car and taking pictures of the wrong house. Altering or enhancing the exterior is important in an effort to remove the reminder of what occurred. A house I plan on covering next month is that of Shanann Watts. If you know the case, you know the house. Imagine that two-story brown-on-brown house instead painted a bright white with black trim and matching black garage doors. While it wouldn't change the tragedy that happened there, it would look almost unrecognizable. It wouldn't be as easy to imagine the horrific events that happened there set against such a stark different backdrop. You know I had to include anything related to hauntings or ghosts if we were going to talk about stigmatized properties, and although I couldn't find much, I think what I did read was interesting. In Bell's experience, he said the scariest part of these properties are that people will break in and destroy the property or hold rituals, something that's apparently very common. However, there was a day he went to oversee the Heaven's Gate Mansion and give the media a tour. Throughout the day, he gave the same tour to several people, walking them through the rooms where the bunk beds sat eerily empty. At the end of each tour, he'd ask the people, what did you think? How did you feel about that? and each group referenced one exact room in particular, saying that it gave them the chills and made them feel extremely uneasy. In a house where 39 bodies were found, this wasn't the only room in the house that would have lives end there, but it was the only one where people felt a palpable creepiness. Interestingly enough, when I was going through the list of states that require a disclosure of death, many of the states specifically mentioned that perceived paranormal activity doesn't need to be disclosed. I never would have thought that was a common enough claim that it would make it into that many legal documents. In an interview with Rolling Stone, while discussing the characteristics that make him perfect for the job and ability to help people going through some of the worst situations in their lives, he said this, quote, I have a high threshold for drama for some reason. I volunteer with prisoners at San Quentin Prison and at Orange County Jail. For some reason, I'm able to handle a high level of trauma. That being said, I don't look at the macabre. I look at my whole career built around helping people through really tough situations, because while people are freaking out and are in total shock and their lives are destroyed, I can walk in and because I'm acclimated to this, I'm able to give them sound advice and sound information to help them through it, at least in part, and in some way make their life a little bit better and take some of the stress off of them. I'm not there to gawk at the murders and suicides, but I love helping people through really tough times. It's kind of like a fireman helping people in horrible auto accidents. I'm there to help. I'm not there to gawk and stare and be a voyeur, end quote. 
Along with volunteering with inmates at San Quentin Prison and Orange County Jail, he also volunteers at the Friendship Shelter, Laguna Beach's nonprofit homeless shelter and rehabilitation center. Here, he helps people by applying the principles to life that he has written about in his books, Rich Habits, Rich Life, The Four Cornerstones of All Great Pursuits, and Me, We, Do, Be, The Four Cornerstones of Success. In these books, he focuses on core IQ, which is described as key skills that many people are not taught as they grow up, including goal setting, stress management, etiquette, leadership, and more. He believes that all people, regardless of their personal situation, deserve free access to this type of content, and he's made that part of his mission. He also co-hosts a podcast called Post-Traumatic Thriving, where they interview people who have experienced and overcome trauma in their own lives. A quote from the podcast's website states, quote, This podcast was created to show a sense of community and a greater understanding of trauma and mental illness, along with providing the tools and resources necessary for individuals to not just survive, but thrive after trauma, end quote. We've come to the end of the episode. If you're still here, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. It truly means so much to me, and I hope it was worthwhile. I think one of my main goals with the podcast is to teach you about something that you find fascinating and hopefully didn't already know that much about or know anything at all. I am constantly reading books and researching things that make me that person that is always telling my friends and family random facts or interesting stories I've read, so I hope to turn you into that person too. Let me know your thoughts or the fact that you found the most interesting to tell your friends or family at the next dinner table. I'll talk to you in the next one.